bow before you this evening. And Father, we're so thankful, Lord, for another day of life that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for uh, the uh, freedom and ability to come and worship you here tonight and uh, to gather with your people. Father, we're thankful, Lord, for the food we were able to eat earlier and for those who provided it. And Father, we just now, Lord, ask that you would feed us from your word. Father, we gather on your word. We want to know you. We want to draw close to you. Uh, be instructed from you, and it's my prayer, Father, that you would just uh, bless this message and bless this series we're about to go through, uh, that it would bring you glory and that it would minister to our hearts, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be in Romans chapter number 12, verse 1 through 2 is going to be our uh, opening text for tonight, and uh, we are starting a series tonight entitled um, Pillars of a Biblical Church, and uh, this particular series is going to focus in upon uh, the solas of the Reformation, and I'll give some description of what that is and uh, why those are important. And uh, so the title of the message tonight is Reformation for Today's Churches, and you'll notice I have it as part one. The reason I did that, because the notes were double what you have, and so I decided I needed to split this in two. <laughs> I didn't want to keep you all here all night, especially after having eaten. I know that uh, I would put you to sleep even easier uh, than normal. So uh, so we're going to do this in a two-part uh, message just to this is more of a foundational message to kind of lay the framework for uh, studying out what these solas are and so let's just read our text and then I'll get into the message here tonight uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2 I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we often hear of the Reformation, right? That's a term that we hear quite often. And when we hear this term, it's often referencing the Reformation that took place in the 15th and 16th centuries onward. So when we think about Reformation, what is Reformation? Well, I have a couple of definitions here and a quote about this. The meaning of reformation is the act or action or process of reforming, which flows from the verb of reform, which is to make changes in order to improve it. So it refers to making changes to improve something, an institution, a practice. Uh, so that could be applied to a variety of different areas. Uh, Francis Schaeffer comments on reformation and revival, and he says this, Reformation is a return to the sound doctrine of the Bible, Revival is the practice of that sound doctrine under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thought that was a good description of Reformation and revival. But what was happening through the Reformation, as we would speak of it in history? Essentially, what you find through the Reformation were the hearts of many men and women who had been trapped in the bondage of darkness under the Roman Catholic Church uh, who were coming to gospel truth. And upon coming to gospel truth, they were also turning... Uh, their practice and the way they lived to a different way than the Roman Catholic Church demanded them. So the Reformation essentially was a protest against the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine and practices. And we probably have all heard about how that somewhat was sparked in history, right? We think back to a man named Martin Luther. We've, anybody heard of him? He's a pretty well-known guy. His name's pretty well-known. Uh, this Reformation was most notably stirred when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was October 31st of 1517. Now, this 95 thesis that he nailed to the door was a call really to the church to evaluate doctrine and practices in light of Scripture. 
And uh, if you read it, you're going to find that Luther, he didn't have all his theology right. Uh, none of them really did at that time. And uh, he wasn't correct on everything afterward either. But what we find is that that was the beginning where he was beginning to see the deep-rooted corruption within Roman Catholicism. And that prompted him to dig into the Scriptures himself. And as he dug into the Scriptures himself, guess what happened to him? He was converted to Christ. He came to realize that justification was only by faith alone. It was not by means of the church or the pope or works or merits, anything of that nature. And so from that point onward, the Lord really began to move in many men, bringing them out of darkness into light, showing forth the great error of Roman Catholicism, leading, which led to many Protestant churches developing over the next few hundred years. But I want to point this note in there too. Being a historical Baptist as I am, and as most of us are, I would say that uh, we do not believe that we came out of the Reformation. I would not hold to that conviction. Um, I would believe that there has always been churches outside of the Catholic Church that held to the gospel. Though those churches were not perfect in everything, uh, even all their doctrine was not perfect, even like we would maybe like it to be, but I do believe that there were churches outside of the Catholic Church that go, go back to Christ. Charles Spurgeon comments on this and says, We believe that the Baptists are the original Christians. We do not commence our existence at the Reformation. We were reformers before Luther or Calvin were born. We never, we never came from the Church of Rome, for we were never in it, but we have an unbroken line up to the apostles themselves. Now, he's talking a little bit of secessionism to a degree, but uh, I think there's some that go overboard on that. I would believe more in a doctrinal perpetuity, not necessarily an uh, unbroken line that just uh, is, you can trace it, it perfectly. But what we find is that those churches, they weren't always called Baptists, those groups of people, those congregations, nor were they perfect by any means in all that they believed in practice, but they were not part of Catholicism. In fact, the Catholic Church brought heavy persecution on those who did not conform to their ways, and you'll find that even some of the Protestants brought persecution as well for some of their disagreements. But here's what I concluded with all of this. In light of the Reformation, in light of history, I do not discount what God did through the Reformation using these men, bringing them to light out of darkness. Uh, even though they still were off on a few things, they had a lot of truth that they brought out of that. So I rejoice in that movement, and I think that's important we learn from that movement. So the Reformation reveals how God's people must turn to truth alone no matter where they've been, what they've been told, what it may cost them, or who may oppose them. And that's essentially a great lesson we learn from the Reformation. Because the truth is that in every generation, there are various ways in which the purity of the gospel is assaulted and the faithfulness of the churches is challenged. Since uh, uh, we, we look at, at cer certain points in history that point us to the fact that no generation of churches is impenetrable to a subtle corruption of gospel truth. If a church does not have a true gospel, I do not believe that it is a true church. Because what is central to us being a church? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is absolutely everything. In fact, what we see in our present day is a multitude of churches that are subtly being swept away into a false or diluted gospel, which leads, what does a false or diluted gospel lead to? It leads to multitudes of counterfeit Conversions, 
and corrupted teachings. So how does any church remain true to a pure gospel and to biblical practices? And I believe that what we see in the five solas, and I'm going to explain these to you, a little bit of a lengthier introduction, but these five solas are really pillars. They are core practical doctrinal things that help keep us where we are needing to be with the gospel. So we think about the five solas for a moment tonight. The word sola is a Latin adjective that means alone. So essentially when you say five solas, you're saying five alones, right? I'm not going to try to make us all just start speaking Latin because I don't think we should. Uh, we are, we are English-speaking people, right? But you, you'll see these terms constantly out there among Christianity. You know, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, sola deo gloria. You'll see those terms, so it's important to identify what they are and what they mean. So when we look at these five singular doctrines that are essential to the church, keeping a pure gospel and scriptural practices, they would include, firstly, sola scriptura. And what does that mean? It means scripture alone, scripture alone. Then you have sola Christus, that is Christ alone for salvation. We see sola gratia, which is grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now, studying this, I often wonder where things come from. These solas, they weren't formalized exactly at the time of the Reformation, but they were the undergirding principles of the Reformation. You're going to find that they were more formalized and known or spread about in the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's, that's, that's fine, right? Because there's many doctrines that the churches believe, but through history, we have formalized and structured those doctrines in a way we can easily identify them biblically, Right? So we look at such as uh, confessions of faith, the doctrines of grace. We see the formalization of certain doctrines, so it's easy to reference them and see them. Now, whether these doctrines were formalized or not at that time, they are core pillars of what the Lord's churches throughout history have believed. They are pillars of a biblical church. A church that does not have these five pillars at its core is subject to gospel perversion and unbiblical practices. How do you know that? Well, if a church does not hold to Scripture alone as its sole authority and practice, guess what? It is subject to unbiblical practices. If it does not hold to Christ alone, then that leaves option for another Savior. If it does not hold to grace alone, then it leaves option for our own merit. So you see how these tie together into a pure, solid gospel foundation and sola scriptura really being the foundation of the rest, for that is where we learn of all of our doctrine. So I want us to consider some things in light of this. This originally was my typical three-point outline, right? And uh, so you might have got excited saw one point, but that one point is two pages long, right? So uh, just bear with me. And uh, as I was bringing out some of these things, I-, I thought it would be good to emphasize some of the things that take place. But number one, I want you to see tonight, this is your only main point. There's two subpoints. I want you to see the problems that we see in churches today the problems that we see in churches today. I think we would all agree to some extent of what, we, what we're going to discuss here and why the solas are important in counteracting this. And the first thing that I see very plainly is that there are many churches that are, sh- that are shallow in their theology, that are very shallow in their theology. And uh, this comes down to the essential need of spiritual growth in the Scriptures and in the Gospel among God's people in the local church. Now... At the core of a church that tears down or lets these pillars fall is really a shallowness or an ignorance of truth to some degree. 
Now we know that truth is always under attack. And if the truth is not known in the hearts of the people, the truth will be forsaken or diluted. We have to know truth. That is something we're called to know. And I believe this, that one of the greatest tragedies of today is that there are multitudes of people, people on membership roles of churches that do not really know what the gospel is, that do not really know biblical truth and why they believe what they believe. A lot of people are in biblical churches that are just there. They're, they're, they're a cultural Christian. They've maybe been raised in church, they've, and so they believe what they've been heard all their life, but they really have no rooting personal conviction in their heart as to why they believe what they believe. And so I believe this is essential for local churches if they are to be strong and, and counteract attacks on the gospel. There are many people who, uh, who coast along on what they've always been told, never having studied Scripture themselves, and they are prey to all forms of false teaching. And not only do they fall prey to false teaching, they also fail to grow to a place where they become the teachers. You see, the point of Christian growth is so that you and I make disciples. Making the disciples, making new disciples and teaching people in, in the gospel and Christ, that is the job of the local church. It's not just a pastor job. It is the local church's job. And so if it is the local church's job to make disciples of all nations, the local church, the individuals in that body, need to know what to teach and what is truth, what is uh, true. So I want to point to a couple scriptures here tonight that help relay this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, I think, is one of the most notable scriptures in regards to this. Hebrews 5 and verse 11 through verse 14. This one really uh, should strike us, and it strikes me too, because I see, uh, I see this issue in churches today, but it's also a challenge to myself to keep growing, to keep growing. Because even as a pastor, us who preach the word, we're, we don't know everything. We don't know everything. Okay, so we're still growing, we're still learning, we're still uh, developing, we're still uh, students of the Word of God always. But notice Hebrews 5 and verse 11 through 14. Notice that uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to these uh, Jewish Christians, and he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now something stuck out to me as I read this passage again. And it's in verse 11. He, he, he notes to them that, he would like to explain to them something that's more difficult to understand. And if you read before that, he's talking about Jesus being high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, Melchizedek's somewhat of a deep thing. He's, he's kind of a mysterious figure and can be hard to understand. But one thing we note here, he says he doesn't go into some of this hard stuff with them. Why? Because they have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Now, I look up that word dull, and, and the Greek term for dull there. It refers to lazy or sluggish. Lazy or sluggish. So essentially, these Christians had become lazy in their hearing, in their learning, in their understanding, and in their growing. And how greatly that speaks of so many Christians today. 
There are many Christians who have been in church a good portion of their life, and they may be genuine Christians, but they still must feed upon the milk only. They've not grown into maturity. They've not grown on into adulthood. You'll notice that Paul, that, well, I was about said Paul, but the author of Hebrews, some people think it's Paul. I'm still not for 100% sure. Uh, but um, Hebrews, he, he tells them that they still need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Now, you can, imagine, can you imagine, think in a physical term, someone who starts out as a baby and they're on milk, but then they just stay on milk the whole rest of their life? That's unnatural, isn't it? That's not what we'd expect. I mean, I was, I was watching Spurgeon last night. Bethany brought him a, a, a bottle of milk right before bed. He just chugged that thing down as fast as he could. And I thought, man, that boy's hungry. He's growing. But there's going to come a point when we're not going to be making him milk anymore. He's going to be eating us out of house and home, right? <laughs> and so we'll feel that at the grocery store. The milk's a little easier right now. Uh, but this is, how, this is how it comes to pass. The same applies to Christians. The, the Christians who are lazy in their learning of truth live only on the milk and do not have the right discernment of deeper truths. And so this is one reason I think you find a lot of contention over some deeper truths is because there are a lot of baby Christians that should be adults and they've not grown on into adulthood to understand some deeper truths. So I think it's important to note that. The same was true not only of the Hebrew Christians but also the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 through 2, he said, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. So what do you see with this? The problem of shallowness, uh, a measure of ignorance among God's people, it's not new to this generation. It's been around since the early church, right? So that, that's something that the church battles with every generation. So it is something that every generation of churches battles with and must overcome. And as the author will go on to say in Hebrews 6.1, he says after that, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So it ought to be our mission as a Christian. I want to grow in Christ. I want to grow in Scripture. I want to grow in the knowledge of truth. Now, there is a reason that the New Testament Christians were urged to grow up in spiritual maturity, having the right knowledge of God and His Word and how to live it out. And the reason is because there was a lot of false doctrine and false teachings that they would be inundated with or tempted with uh, that they need to be able to stand against. So Paul urged the Ephesians that with the ministry of the local church and the instruction of complete truth, they would not be carried about with error. He writes to them in Ephesians 4, verse 14 and 15. He says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. Now you notice that he wants them to grow up and be solidified in truth. Why? So they won't be carried about with every wind of doctrine. And uh, that is one thing that we have to be on guard about. And this is also another reason why Paul did not withhold truth. Paul did not withhold truth when it came to preaching and teaching all that God had revealed. What do we find with Paul? He always preached the whole counsel of God. 
Acts 20 and verse 26 through 27, to the church in Ephesus, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, here's a principle for us. Do we need the whole counsel of God, or do we just need a portion of the word of God? I think we know the answer to that, don't we? We need all of it. We need all of it. And uh, all of it is what we need to hear. All of it is what we need to study. Now, do we think that the whole counsel of God was immediately understood and embraced as soon as it entered those who heard it? Probably not. Why? Because they needed to study. They needed to grow. They needed to dig. They needed to have time to digest and understand the truth that is being taught. Now, understand this, that every Christian needs to take their own initiative in growing in the Word of God, growing in the Scriptures alone. It is not for the Christian to listen to the preacher and depend solely upon what the preacher has said or the Sunday school teacher has taught. Believe it or not, far too many, that's, that's the extent of their Christian life. That's the extent of their Christian knowledge. What the preacher says and what the Sunday school teacher taught them, no more after Sunday, it's just Sunday to Sunday. Christian, you've got to dig into the Bible more than that. You have to be in the Word of God yourself. I mean, as much as you might learn from your uh, preacher or Sunday school teacher, we're so thankful for that, uh, we have to dig ourselves. Lately, David will say something to me, and he'll, he'll state some kind of fact or something. I don't, it's random. I don't know how, what goes through his brain sometimes. But um, I, I've started asking, I said, how do you know that? Just messing with him. He says, because I know everything. And that sparks my attention. I say, well, well, how did you come to know everything? And his answer is, from my Sunday school class. <laughs> so it, that's his answer every time. When he learns, he's, he's got a really good Sunday school teacher. So whoever's teaching him Sunday school, you're doing a great job. But as much as we might learn from our preacher teacher, we have to dig into the Bible and solidify our convictions in what is true from the whole of God's Word. We see a great example of this from the people in Berea in Acts 17.11. The Bible says here, Now those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul goes into this town and he's preaching Christ, that he's the Christ, he's the Christ, he's the Christ. They didn't just take his word for it. You know they did? They got their Old Testament Bible out and they started hunting and looking and digging into the scriptures and seeing whether what Paul was saying was so. I don't expect you to believe everything that comes out of my mouth, all right? I'm a human being. I am, sub, I am subject to fall, fault. And, and so that's why we are to uh, iron each other. Iron sharpens iron, right? And so we're to look at the Scriptures together. And this is essentially what you see happening during the Reformation. People weren't just taking the Pope and the priest at the word. They began digging into the Scriptures and seeing for themselves the truth of the Gospel. They had been blinded by their raising in the Roman Catholic Church, and they weighed their beliefs against the Scriptures of God instead of what the church was saying. So what do we find with this? The problem we see in much of today's churches is that individual spiritual growth is neglected, which in turn produces shallowness in churches. Many professing believers, though they may be genuinely saved, are biblically ignorant on many issues, many issues. Now, how is it that we grow up in the faith? By digging into the Word, studying it, praying over it, submitting to all of it, not just parts of it. But there is some ramifications. There's some ramifications of what happens when God's churches or people within the church 
are not as rooted and grounded as they ought to be. And I point out a few of these ramifications, and I borrow these from uh, Paul Washer's book on, he, he has a book on 10 indictments of the, against the modern church, and a lot of things that he brings out are, are just right, he's the nail on the head uh, as we look at the landscape of, of churches today. And uh, here's a few of them that I want to share with you that I completely agree with that I think are essential. One is this, is that when we're not rooted and grounded in the Scripture alone, there is a practical denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, most Christians universally would agree and say, yes, the Bible is the Word of God. Yes, it's inerrant. But when it comes to what the Word of God actually says for faith and practice, there are many times that it is practically denied. Often, what do you find in churches? We find that tradition will trump over what the Scriptures actually tell us. And so when we go to a church that has a tradition and show them that the Scriptures actually teach opposite of that tradition, they buck against the Scriptures and stick with tradition. I've seen that over and over again. So this was a key problem in the days of Jesus with the Pharisees. Jesus said of their practices in Mark seven thirteen, he said that because of their tradition, he says, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. He was correcting them on some things that they had traditionally added and traditionally were following, but were not in line with what the word of God had taught. And the truth is, is that churches do the same thing today when they are shallow in their knowledge of the Word of God. Shallowness leads one to not submit to Scripture alone as their authority. And when one is not submitted to Scripture alone as their authority, on top of that, other ideologies and other traditions may be added to the Word of God to accommodate it, which is not right. Letter B, or secondly, with a shallowness of Scripture... There is also an ignorance of the whole character of God. Now, this is probably one of the most prominent things I see. What do we see across the landscape in many churches? We see a very low view of God. And I'll confess, I had a low view of God years ago. And I praise God that it's only through growing in His Word that we come to see a high view of God, that He is almighty, that He is sovereign, that He is omnipotent, that He is omnipresent and omniscient and holy. See, many Christians that I'm finding, they overemphasize one characteristic of God at the expense of another. We find a lot of preachers today, God's love, God's love, God's love. Yes, that is true. He is love. But He is also wrath. He is also jealous. He's also holy. He's also just. Uh, and so there's many, many Christians who emphasize the love and mercy of God while disregarding the holiness and wrath of of God and fail to realize that God is glorified in both of those things. He is glorified in his mercy and he's also glorified in his wrath, not just his mercy. And so when we when we don't get a view of the whole character of God, it makes us have a lower view of God even though we may not realize it. It erases a proper fear of God in the church. 1 Corinthians 15:34 Paul wrote to them in that resurrection chapter. He said to them, Wake up from your drunken stupor as, it is, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, Paul's writing to a church there. He's not writing to lost people. He's writing to a church. And so the lack of knowledge of God here, it was in the context of the resurrection. Keep that in mind. But still, it was lacking a knowledge of God's working and what he's going to do. And so we as Christians, we are called to 
know God. We must know Him. Jeremiah 9, I love this passage where the prophet, or God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9 and verse 23 through verse 24. And I'll read this briefly to you. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows who? Me, right? That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So that is what God demands. We have nothing to glory in, we have nothing to boast in, but that we know God. And even that, knowing God, is all of His grace. So we have no boasting. Another thing that we see is a ramification of shallowness in the church is there is an ignorance of the nature of man. There is an ignorance of the nature of man, and this is another prevalent. By and large, there are many people in churches today who think that man is somewhat good, but yet he still has, he still has sin. That's not true. That's not true. You know why that's not true? Because man is not somewhat good and has a little sin. He is exceedingly sinful and has zero good. He has zero good. And so to see that nature of man really contradicts how highly we think of ourselves, doesn't it? It takes away that boasting. And this is a tragedy to not see this because understanding that man is exceedingly sinful and condemned to eternal judgment is essential to understanding the gospel of Christ. The good news is not the good news without first knowing the terrible bad news. Paul said in Romans 3.12 of mankind, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. We like to think ourselves to be pretty good, don't we? Surely I'm not as bad as so-and-so. The reality is that God says even the good things that we do are as filthy rags before Him. Why? Because we are ingrained with a sinful nature and we can't change that. The only thing that we can look to for hope is the gospel of Christ. Failing to see this fails to give man the proper diagnosis. And if you have a wrong diagnosis, you will not have the right cure. Which leads us to this fourth thing that is detrimental because of shallowness in the Scriptures. It is an ignorance of the gospel of Christ. You see, the good news of Christ dying for sinners and rising from the dead, that is the gospel, in short and summary. But often, it is only those statements that are told to the sinner without explanation of what those things mean. If you go to the sinner and say, well, Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and he's the way of salvation. Why? Why is that? Why is that good news? What is it that, that in that action of Jesus that is the gospel? And here's what's missing when we water it down and don't give the whole truth of the gospel. All right? Here's what's missing. It's the truth that Christ's death It was a substitutionary work. He died in the place of sinners, and in his death, he bore the wrath of God on behalf of sinners because we were hopeless to have any salvation without a perfect substitute. And so Christ, the perfect substitute, there on the cross, dies in agony and bloodshed, and the holy wrath of God is poured on him on behalf of sinners who will believe, and then he is risen from the dead three days later. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Scripture tells us, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Friend, that is the gospel of Christ. But sadly, 
it is so watered down, it is barely recognizable in many, many circles. Fifthly, I'm trying to come through this. It's a good thing I cut this in half. I'm just telling you. So bear with me, okay? I know your stomachs are full. Fifthly, something else that's detrimental to a shallowness of Scripture, understanding the Bible, is an ignorance of conversion. An ignorance of conversion. And this one, I think, believe, I believe more prevalently flows out of the things that we just saw. Here's what we find happen today. Sinners are told that God loves them and that all they need to do is be saved is just say the sinner's prayer. You ever heard that? That's the gospel message in a large variety of churches. God loves you. Well, that's great news to the sinner. You know why? Because the sinner loves himself too. God loves me, and he'll just accept me as I am. It's true that God loves, loves us, okay? I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is that the gospel is often misrepresented as if it's only love and that all you need to do is just, is just say some magic prayer and you'll be saved. They're called upon to make a decision for Christ. And all of this is called easy believism. It permeates our churches. It's a tragedy. This practice permeates. It fails to recognize the need of regeneration. Regeneration. It fails to recognize the need of regeneration of the sinner's heart. It fails to see that just as the death and resurrection of Christ was supernatural work, so also is conversion. Friend, Jesus did not come into the world saying, I'm here, whoever would like to receive me, just invite me into your heart. You don't find a lot of the gospel invitations of today in the Bible anywhere. What you do find is repent and believe the gospel. What you do find is Jesus says, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The work of regeneration leading to conversion is a work of the Spirit in our heart working us into salvation, which leads us to faith. So today's manipulative invitation of the gospel, it exalts decisionism over regeneration. And what happens when that takes place? When decisionism replaces regeneration, you'll find that churches are full of unconverted members. Those who made a decision for Christ, but were never truly born again, and now they're in the church, have all the authority of being a church member, governing within the church, and thus you see the domino effect of carnality in the church. So we have to be aware of the gospel. Fifthly, is an ignorance of the local church. There's an ignorance of the local church as a result of shallowness in the word of God. The local church is what? It is a called out assembly of regenerated and baptized people. It exists for what purpose? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church is for the glory of God, but so many think that the church is about us. That's the concept of church today. Many people, well, the church is about me. It needs to satisfy me. It's about me and what I want and what I, how I feel. It's made out to be like it's a club or a social gathering or just another religious activity. But it is not just a religious activity. It is a sacred body of Christ meant to be kept pure and holy. The church is to worship Christ, keep the ordinances, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, unify together, practice church discipline, which is often forsaken today, and be a light of Christ to the world. And when a, and when a congregation doesn't understand the nature and purpose of the church, that church is in serious trouble, serious trouble. Due to an ignorance of the local church, 
there is a lack of devotion to the church and her purpose. We read in the early church right after that great day of Pentecost in Acts 2.42 that those believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayers. What's that church doing? They would gather together to gather around the teaching of truth of Christ of the word for fellowship, for breaking of bread, for prayer. This is worship, friend. The early church knew what it was about. And so greatly Christians need to understand this today. The church is to know her purpose and mission to fulfill it. And yet we find in many churches, they're not doing what Christ Christ has called them to do. They forsake true worship, church discipline, unity, doctrine, the ordinances, and various other things for carnal pleasures. Now, I by no means am trying to give a black eye to the church. I'm just giving a broad overview of some of the threats, some of the problems that we see in churches. I'm thankful for the solid, solid, grounded churches that are standing upon truth, Lee Creek being one of them. I'm so thankful for the, for the establishment of Lee Creek and her, her rooting in truth. But it's important for us to understand that if we're not on guard against these things, we're not above these kind of things creeping into our own church. So much more could be said about the shallowness in churches but, and how it impacts them. But what this affirms to us today is that there are many churches in need of reformation, in need of coming back to biblical truth and understanding the gospel, understanding the scriptural practices that we are to follow through with. And shallowness leads to another problem that we see in the churches. And this brings me to this second and last point, which is conformity to the world around us. Churches that are worldly in their practices. This is the second problem we see. Not only a shallowness in their theology, but a shallowness in theology inevitably leads to this. Worldliness in their practices. That brings us to our opening text that I had you had us read at the beginning. And I'll read it again in Romans 12, if you'll look there with me. Romans 12, verse 1 through 2. And notice this. He says again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in this text, Paul is urging, pleading with this church that they live a sacrificed life unto the Lord. But hone in with me on verse 2 for a moment. In part of this... He says, do not be conformed to this world. What does it mean to be conformed to something? The word conformed here means to form according to a pattern or a mold. So it is to take after the pattern of the world in which they were living. He's referencing this world, which is the same word for age. He's talking about the non-Christian influence around them. He's saying, don't be patterned after the age in which you live, the non-Christian influences of your culture. And so notice what Paul tells them here and how to counter that conformity. He says, be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind. Now, this requires testing and discerning what is the will of God, as he says. Now, this verse, it applies to the Christian life individually, It also applies to us corporately as a local church. And as we look at the landscape of churches all over this country, do we see the influence of the world taking hold of churches in any form? 
Absolutely we do. We're going to go over some details about that next week, and that's what I had to kind of cut out, uh, some ways in which the world is inf- infiltrating and influencing the church. But just, just in summary, let's look through this for a moment. There are many churches that have so conformed to the world around them that they no longer have a true gospel at all. It's completely false. It's completely false. It doesn't matter if they gather in the name of Christ. The gospel they preach is not a gospel at all. And Paul said this in Galatians 1.9, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul minces no words on false gospels. And how does this false gospel creep in? When the church is shallow in its understanding and does not identify false teaching or false teachers. Now Jesus praises the Ephesian church for their discernment in Revelation 2.2. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So that's, a, that's a good word for that church. They tested those who were false and, 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 and didn't, didn't succumb to them. But without having spiritual depth and grounding, God's people are bound to conform to those in, who influence them around them, even if they're doing it in Christ's name. Now, not only have false gospels infiltrated churches, but they also use the name of Christ just as a means of really bringing the masses into religious idolatry. They appeal to the world instead of God. You're going to find many who will gather in the name of Christ, and their entire gathering is about the world. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Even though they say they're there in the name of Christ, it's all about them. It's all about the world. And we know how serious Paul was about this too in Galatians 1.10. Same context. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. This is essentially a major key for us. Do we gather to meet with God and please God, or do we gather for man and to please man? That's essentially it. Conformed churches and preachers focus on men, whether it be themselves or others. And this is evidence, as we see many of the health, wealth, and prosperity Uh, preachers today they gather in the name of christ but christ is not among them and as a result there are multitudes that are trapped in a false church that is not christ church multitudes have been persuaded that they are right with god headed for heaven yet hell will be their inheritance and it is all due to this kind of conformity it is a subtle deception that takes place when a church conforms to the world around them and is focused on men, and it often becomes cultish. There's a young man that talked with me at Chick-fil-A. I was traveling through Memphis one, one time. I think it was on the way here or back home. I can't remember. I might have told you about this, but I was traveling through, and he was traveling to Houston, uh, and he just kept talking to me about a church that he was going to, and he was just raving about this church. He kept saying, oh, the, the, the preacher is awesome. Uh, the church is wonderful, and he just kept insisting that I look into this preacher, that I look into this church and tune in. And I said, okay, what, what, what church is it? What preacher is it? I've, been to Houston, I've lived in Houston a few years. What is it? He said, oh, it's Lakewood Church with Joel Osteen. I about fell over. But I also took note of him, watching his mannerisms, watching how persuaded he was in Joel Osteen and Lakewood Church. And, and, and there was, you could just see the deception in his face, how that he was so convinced that this was right. This was religion. This is what he needed. The spirit of this age is powerful. 
and it subtly creeps into churches and destroys them. You know, many of the, the, the world would categorize Joel Osteen and Lakewood Church as the largest church in America. But you understand, biblically speaking, it is not a true church. It is a pagan gathering. It has nothing to do with Christ, even though they may have his name on a few things. He does not preach the gospel. There are many congregations, large and small, groups of people who gather in the name of Christ, but Christ is not among them. And ignorance of the true gospel and the scriptures leads to the church being nothing but a gathering place of error. Shallowness and worldliness will ultimately lead to a church being illegitimate. And this is a great problem we see overall in many churches, although not all, praise God. There are many churches that, 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 are, that are staying true to the Scriptures, but then there's others that are falling by the wayside. So if there is a conformity to the world that produces counterfeit Christianity, and conformity will always detro- destroy the church. Maybe physically, because they'll close the doors, dry up, but certainly in a spiritual sense. And the root to this, I believe it's important for us to understand this, It is a shallowness and ignorance of Scripture and the gospel. As God said through the prophet Hosea, Hosea 4 and verse 6, my people are destroyed for what? Lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. What a stark warning it is for us. We read of Israel's context and how, how important it is for us to have knowledge. The church today needs to know afresh the truth that uphold her. And I believe that these pillars, these five solas, these pillars, these doctrinal principles, all right, that we begin looking at, they're core doctrines that keep the church standing where it needs to stand. With the pulling down of these pillars, we see the ideologies of the world taking their place. There's many of them, many patterns, and we'll look at some of them tomorrow and how they are working. But for now, I want to encourage us to be challenged as we look at this passage of Scripture and the problems we see in many of the churches today. I want to challenge us individually that we are grounded and growing in truth of the gospel, that the Word of God, that we are genuinely students of the Word of God. It's not just for the pastor to be a student. It is the job of every Christian to be a student of the Word of God of the living God. And as you're a student of the word of the living God, we are to guard ourselves against being conformed to the patterns of this age. It's not just about influencing the church too. Think about our own Christian life. In what ways in my life might the world around me be influencing me, influencing me and maybe deterring me from my Christianity that I'm supposed to be living? So I pray that I encourage you and challenge you and it's a hope that it's a foundation for for us as we as we go forward onto it next week. So